at a Vegas sports book, what you see is an experience where whether a team is favored by eight points or nine points is almost the least important feature. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello and welcome to Sports Tech Feed. I'm your host, Thomas Loams. Great to have you joining us again this week. On today's show, we have Lloyd Danzig, founder and managing partner at Sharp Alpha Advisors, a venture capital firm specializing in sports betting and online gaming. Lloyd previously managed institutional portfolios for BlackRock, data science initiatives for Samsung, and machine learning engines for SimpleBet. This is a great discussion on the role of technology in sports betting, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, and how the investment thesis of Lloyd is, is influenced by what's happening in the space, and then branching out into things like NFTs and the blockchain. Thanks again for joining us. This is Lloyd Danzig. Lloyd Danzig, founder and managing partner at Sharp Alpha Advisors. Welcome to Sports Tech Feed. Great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot, Thomas. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So sports betting, if you are in the US, it is an absolute gold rush at the moment and you can't uh, kind of move for basically news about uh, um, M&A activity, uh, innovations that are happening in the tech space kind of being sucked up by um, sports betting companies and all the data providers. Um, obviously a pretty exciting time with the repeal of PASPA since 2018 and now throughout the States it's becoming legalized. Do you have a view on where that's going to get to? I mean, what's the ultimate um, addressable market in the U S yeah. So there definitely is uh, quite a, a gold rush uh, here in the U S right now. And I have a couple of different thoughts on kind of where, where the industry is going in particular in relation to the size of the, the total addressable market and the opportunity. So the first part of the story uh, is something a lot of Wall Street analysts pontificate on, which is what will be the aggregate gross gaming revenues across all of the operators in a given year once this market matures. So if you take the amount that DraftKings makes from all its customers in a year, plus FanDuel's, plus PointsBet, plus Barstool, you add those all together when the market is at maturity, what will that top line revenue figure look like? That's one of the primary questions people ask these days. And the way I see it is if the U.S. reaches, which it absolutely should, if not exceed, the per capita gross gaming revenue levels seen in other mature markets like the U.K. and Australia, uh, it should be a quite a sizable uh, revenue opportunity, depending on whether you conceive per capita GGR on an absolute dollar basis or on a percentage of PCE, personal consumption expenditure basis, and depending on how fast you expect different states to legalize which types of sports betting, this type of calculus gets you to about a 30 to $60 billion annual gross gaming revenue figure. And what I think is important to add on top of that is that, first of all, there's good reason to think that the U.S. will not only meet but exceed the levels of gross gaming revenue per capita seen in these other markets. Right now, we have evidence if you look at New Jersey and to a slightly lesser extent, Indiana or Colorado, you see that gaming as a share of wallet is significantly higher than the levels that were seen at the equivalent points of the expansion in the U.K. and Australia gaming markets, and they are growing faster. But I think perhaps even the bigger point to make is what I think has now been validated by the public markets, which is the fact that gross gaming revenues are only one part of the total addressable market. 
When we talk about the TAM, we're basically saying, what is the revenue opportunity for the DraftKings and FanDuel's of the world? And what is clear is that that now includes not only sports betting and iGaming, but NFT marketplaces and chains of sports bars and frozen pizza brands uh, and all sorts of adjacent spaces where you have companies like Fanatics, for example. Fanatics wants you to use one wallet to bet on sports, buy tickets to the games, buy merchandise, and buy all your collectibles. Uh, and so that is, I think, one of the other very important points. First is that I think the gross gaming revenue figures will exceed even the most bullish expectations, but perhaps even more importantly, that the revenue opportunity is much larger because of the expansion into these really interesting adjacent industries. That's an excellent explanation. That's, I mean, as you said, GGR, so people that haven't come across that term, that's basically, uh, for the layman, that's how you explain um, uh, betting percentages in, in populations, in betting values in, in populations. So if you take 100 people from Australia as a sample, how many, how many of those people would bet and how much? And take the same, same sample in the UK. And then, as you said, in somewhere like New Jersey or across the US. So it's, um, it's certainly something that there's a hunger for in the US. Um, US sports fans are just... Uh, stats and data mad um, and it's always been an integral part of of the sports experience here um, so that's a natural evolution to gaming to gambling but uh, it's also Thomas, something- just just to put a finer point on that since you're right I, I forget that not all sports fans and even sports business or sports tech aficionados are necessarily fluent in the accounting nomenclature for the world of sports betting <clears throat> there are really two primary financial terms and metrics uh, that the DraftKings and FanDuel's of the world will report on, and especially in the U.S., but also in in other countries where gaming is regulated and therefore taxed, they have to publish these figures, uh, usually on a monthly basis. So the largest number that is often reported is, is referred to as handle. Handle is the total dollar amount wagered, and it comes from in the olden days before there were digital sports books. This is the actual number of dollars that a physical sports book would handle in a given day. The total number of dollars that would be handed over to the cashiers and put in the cash register. And then some people will lose their bets and some people will win. So after the sports book pays out all of those winnings, what they have left is their gross gaming revenues. From there, there are some other deductions that then get you to what is called net gaming revenue. But gross gaming revenue is typically the figure that is used to express the size of the total addressable market, because in theory, that is the top line revenue figure from which all of the payments and the salaries and things of that nature are made. So I just wanted to put a finer point on that for the listeners. That's great. Thank you. That's, um, yeah, that's why you're the expert and I'm the host. So absolutely, um, absolutely bang on there. And uh, it's interesting as well in the US market, just from a sports fan sports fans point of view how it's it's at this very uh nascent educational stage in the sense of ads for sports books uh across the u.s are actually educating u.s um fans on how to even bet like the concept of um something that's not that integrated with um the sports experience at the moment as it is in the uk and australia um really it's it's kind of amazing how as I said, early stage it is. Um, and, and that's why everyone's so excited about this market is because it's got so much left to grow and to mature. Um, and to your point around you know, NFTs, collectibles, all that kind of stuff, do you see that the sports betting providers are basically starting afresh here 
not coming from a legacy point of view in the UK and Australia, where it was all about bricks and mortar. It was, you would have your bookies at the racetrack. You would have, um, say, your local um, TAB in Australia. Um, and it was very structured to that. Is it now that's why we're seeing so much more technology investment? Is it that basically they're coming to this with a, with a kind of fresh set of eyes and going, the, the opportunity here is beyond just sports betting. It's actually the entire fan experience that needs to be captured. Yeah, so I think uh, there's probably two main factors, although several factors involved in the question as to why the technological gold rush, why all the Stanford and Harvard graduates racing to become engineers at sports betting startups, unlike what has been seen in, in other markets. I think another important and interesting question is what will be the role of brick and mortar casino and other gaming facilities in the U.S. market? But to answer your question here, uh, I think, first of all, part of it is simply the timing of things. Uh, the U.K. had their PASPA moment in 2005, and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok were, were largely not even invented yet. The U.S. happens to, I think very fortuitously, be having its explosion into real money gaming at the same time that the broader digital transformation is taking place, the growth of platforms like Robinhood and communities like Wall Street Bets, uh, just the general zeitgeist around what people spend their time doing and what technological infrastructure exists to support people's leisure activities and how they do their jobs every day is much more conducive to this type of technological emphasis uh, compared to the similar or the times at which some of the other markets that you're describing were having their expansion. But also, I think there is another important factor, which is partially related to timing, but there is a different sociocultural relationship with gambling and in particular sports betting in the US now than there is in the UK and Australia, and especially different in the US now than there was in the UK and Australia 15 years ago. Sports betting is almost not even considered gambling uh, culturally by many people in the U.S. It's almost more of an entertainment product. It's a social activity. The amount that you bet is the price that you pay for admission to the entertainment venue or to the entertainment product or to the social experience or, or to the fraternity of other people that can lament in losing that bet at the last second with that you know buzzer beater shot uh, or last second field goal. Uh, whereas, especially in 2005 in the UK, for example, sports betting was uh, much more private, stigmatized, transactional business. And that's why if you go to a William Hill betting parlor in even the nicest part of London, it's like an ATM vestibule almost. Uh, it's very transactional. It's not a place to hang out and have a beer with your buddies and watch the game. It's a place to place your bet, get in and get out. Whereas at a Vegas sports book, what you see is an experience where whether a team is favored by eight points or nine points is almost the least important feature. Uh, and, and I think that speaks to not only a timing factor, but a cultural difference where there is a demand for high fidelity, high quality social and entertainment products that are interconnected to the broader entertainment ecosystem and enhance a sports fan or sports bettors viewer experience that just were not present and maybe even still are not present in some of these other markets. So that combination of timing and 
cultural differences is, I think, largely uh, why you're seeing such a rush of innovation and concomitantly technology investment in the space. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's also something that is, it's always the elephant in the room when it comes to sports betting and especially in those markets that you mentioned, um, most notably the UK and Europe is as the US booms, regulators are clamping down on sports betting, especially when it comes to uh, advertising in sports. So Jersey sponsorships, um, kind of club sponsorships, um, obviously some kind of big moves happening there in the UK and then um, across Europe. So, I mean, that's something that problem gambling does exist. What role can technology play in that to address that? And and how can, I guess, the, the US with this gold rush um, get ahead of um, going the same way of those more mature markets in the next 15, 20 years? Yeah, so first of all, your, your point is a fantastic one that that more people need to have their eyes on, which is this incredible juxtaposition between, on the one hand, the U.S. market, it feels like there's a new sports team that signs an official sports betting partner every day. And in Europe, every professional soccer football league is banning gambling companies from sponsoring team kits. Italy has a nationwide ban on gambling-related advertising. There's all sorts of regulations moving in quite the opposite direction. And when I talk to uh, journalists and podcast hosts, for example, from the UK and Australia who see this going on, often what they say is, ah, typical arrogant Americans, you guys think you're going to somehow avoid the same fate that every other regulated gambling market in the world has fallen into, which, as you're referencing, uh, has caused a ton of friction and really been a constraint on, on profitability. Others combat that and say, no, 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 the U.S. has a much stricter regulatory regime and a different appetite for the integration of betting into their culture will be fine. Uh, and my guess is that the right answer is somewhere in, in the middle there. Uh, but then you also bring up you know, the, the problem gambling topic and where technology can come in. And perhaps, especially based on my last answer, perhaps the timing with which the U.S. market is exploding maybe will lend itself more to technologically implemented solutions to help enforce responsible or sustainable gaming. And really, there's a few primary mechanisms that are in the works and or currently released in alpha or beta or, or in live production. One is the concept of self-limiting and self-exclusion tools, where you as a user typically have the option to say, I do not want to deposit more than X dollars per day or per week, or I do not want to use the app or be able to place bets between you know, 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. on Saturday nights, uh, or I do not want to be allowed to be permitted on any gambling sites for the next 30 days or 30 months or indefinitely. And those are, are very valuable resources or types of tools to have. But of course, the people who need those tools the most are the ones that will try to circumvent the controls mm -hmm. that are imposed to keep them safe. And that's why it's such a technological challenge. How do you look at someone's fingerprint in, from the data perspective almost to see that they're actually signing on using their wife's name and driver's license and still prevent them from gambling if they signed up for a self-exclusion list. And that tends to be a problem well 
suited for technologists and data scientists. And, and so there are various solutions uh, in this realm. Uh, another important concept that exists overseas uh, and just is not quite as common here yet is the idea of affordability checks. Uh, in Spain, Belgium, Sweden, Finland, and Germany right now, and the UK was considering it, but decided against it at some point this year, they might revisit. Once you get to certain thresholds of having lost a certain amount of money in a week or a month, uh, you cannot gamble or deposit more without proving uh, that you have a certain salary or net worth. Uh, and they will only let you continue gambling if your losses are some small enough percentage of that salary or, or net worth. And of course, that all is technologically implemented because how are people going to get access to the bank accounts and the verification of what that net worth and kind of salary is? Uh, and then, you know, you have also programs that are being used to try to detect deviations from responsible gaming behaviors in real time. So just for example, if you have a sportsbook user who always bets exactly $10 and only does so on weekdays from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. And then one weekend on Saturday at 1 a.m., they place a $10 bet and lose, and then a $20 bet and lose, and then a $40, and then an $80 bet and lose. You could probably be assured that that is not what that user would even consider for themselves to be responsible gaming behavior, and they might be chasing their losses in some capacity. And so there are various ways, obviously you can't be too intrusive and you have to respect people's privacy as well as autonomy, but there are some various solutions that are, are looking to algorithmically identify deviations from responsible gaming behavior and sort of interfere in real time. So those are some of the ways in, in which technology is being used. I'd also mention that on the league and team side, a very important aspect of keeping people safe from what can be some of the negative externalities of regulated online sports betting uh, is making sure that the leagues and the players and the athletes and the referees are immune to match fixing offers and threats of violence for, you know, not uh, doing certain things on the field. And so there are also an entire set of technologically implemented tools uh, in the field of integrity monitoring that are watching as different betting activity comes in and cross-referencing that with activity on Twitter and on social media uh, to make sure that uh, the underlying integrity of the sporting events is not, not being compromised. And uh, honestly, I'm sure there's probably a, a whole bunch of other uh, really futuristic, you know, AI powered, uh, maybe even, you know, biometric type technologies that are on the horizon, but these are some of the ones that are already exist today. And that was um, something that we saw in the in the pandemic when you had people betting on Ukrainian third tier soccer <laughs> and ping pong yep. in North Korea or whatever it was. Um, that you had these leagues and these um, competitions that never had this kind of focus, never had this kind of money flowing through them. Um, so probably didn't have the, the integrity checks and balances um, that established popular leagues did um and you just yeah kind of criminal elements saw this as a fantastic opportunity and, and some really interesting um discussion around ghost games and things like that and there was a i was gonna say ghost some some of the games didn't even ever take place yes uh, and yeah, groups of, yeah. right group, groups groups of groups of gamblers essentially were able to submit falsified 
match results from matches that never took place to an official data provider that then pushed those results out to the sports books that were paying out the bets, which they themselves, the people who created that falsified match, had bet on in the first place. It was almost pretty clever and ingenious if it wasn't so uh, illegal, to be honest. And these are the types of things that just at the scale that sports betting is taking place all around the world, covering sports 24 hours a day in every country imaginable uh, without technology, it just would not be possible, uh, I think, to keep this ecosystem safe and sustainable. So I'm glad you pointed out the ghost games because it's a fascinating phenomenon that especially there was a major uptick of during the pandemic and, and not so many people are necessarily aware of that. Yeah. And it's something that um, solution, I think technology has fantastic solutions for that in terms of being able to, I call it the democratization of technology is basically taking technologies that were only available for the elite. And it's true across the, the, the world of sports technology. It's cr- true across um, what we're seeing, say something like a whoop on a personal performance and health tracking, something that was only available to, um, elite athletes and special warfighters that bringing that down to um, everyday people that can use it and then also on the other side on say the production sh- side um, talking about automated um, AI powered cameras that can be fixed to a stadium and then can record without an expensive production team can record all the action follow the action that's happening there in a game and then if say that's for high school football you know if parents or whatever want to stream it that's fine but also for lower tier games um, if people are placing bets on it, just doing that through a data provider, well, how about you give them some footage of the game so they can actually follow along and, and it becomes a, a richer experience to your points earlier rather than um, transactional. Um, so they actually can see it and then, you know, the team, the league don't have to uh, spend a lot of money on, on uh, infrastructure and on, on production companies but can still give the fans a, I mean, a quality experience both in terms of how enjoyable it is but also the fact that it's actually happening and it's not a couple of ukrainian guys sitting in their lounge room um texting through falsified data so uh that's that's probably a good segue to the actual tech investments that you see so what is your in, your investment thesis so obviously you've you've got this um this new fund that's that's investing in in technology involved in in sports betting what are what are the actual winners that you see in this space yeah that's a great question i I, from a a macro perspective uh the way we see it i I sort of mentioned this before is that the u.s sports betting opportunity is much bigger than even the most bullish estimates suggest and and we think that for three reasons one is that the entertainment driven nature of sports betting in the u.s will cause the share of wallet composed by gaming to exceed, not just meet, but exceed the levels seen in Australia and the UK and other markets. Two is that also, as, as I mentioned, the expansion into adjacent industries, esports and skill-based gaming and NFTs and all of that uh, will significantly increase the pie that everyone is going after. And then third, that a lot of the technology being created in the current digital transformation in the US will be ex boarded and used internationally, which even further expands the size of that pot. But those three things and that that reasoning for betting on the sports betting space could also be reasoning uh, for creating a sports betting hedge fund, let's say, that's investing in public companies or late stage growth equity routes. So why startups? Uh, the reason is because there's a fascinating confluence of factors, a perfect storm 
in the U.S. market right now, where you have the incredibly rapid pace of market development combined with astronomically high customer acquisition costs, combined with almost insurmountable regulatory burden, make it so that the market leaders, the DraftKings, the FanDuel's, the Disney's, the ESPN's, the Endeavor's, the fanatics of the world, for the most part, are buying or licensing technology rather than building it, even when it comes to core functionality. Uh, And that is why there is such an enormous opportunity for early stage nimble companies that can develop technology quickly for a user base and a core audience that they know well and iterate on it and really reach that product market fit uh, with a new novel idea. And and then in terms of actually sourcing and and picking uh, deals to participate in out of this enormous stream, uh, I think some of the questions we ask ourselves when, when looking at a deal are probably very similar to what many other VCs ask themselves. Has this company identified an important problem? Do they have a compelling solution to that problem? Is that solution monetizable at scale? And do they have the right team to monetize that solution at scale? Uh, And then we also, especially as seed stage investors, we really like to think about, is this the best possible time to invest in this company? We want to get in right before the first double and get out right after the last double. Get in right before the valuation doubles for the first time uh, and get out after the valuation doubles for the final time. It's kind of the optimal uh, sort of investment trajectory. Uh, And then also like to say, can we add a ton of value here? Uh, There are so many deals and there are enough that we could exclusively participate in ones in which we can help shape our own destiny to a degree. Uh, that it often is hard to justify making an investment in which that is not the case. And then if all of those things fall into, uh, into place, the, the final question, or maybe it actually is the first question, to be honest, is does this company's roadmap align with our macro thesis and our vision for how the uh, industry will unfold? Yeah, well put. I like that, um, the kind of the, the double-double um, uh, it's an easy way to think of it rather than we'll get out when we've made a lot of money. It's going actually, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good, um, yardstick for, for how the investment goes. Obviously it doesn't happen with all investments, but, um, you, you just need sure. one, you just need to pick one or two, um, investing is like, uh, what is it? Baseball, you fail six times or seven times and they put you in the hall of fame. Um, so yeah, picking winners in that respect. And, Coming back in, in kind of, we're getting towards the end of our time here, but I, I want to come back to what you talked about earlier about uh, blockchain, blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and NFT. So you mentioned that these um, sports betting providers in the US, especially, are seeing themselves as almost, um, you know, part, I mean, something like a Barstool Sports is a lifestyle brand, um, and then something like a DraftKings and, and what they're doing in the space is is really trying to be a fan experience company. Um, how do you see those technologies, I guess, integrating into um, the market? And also how do they influence your investment outlook? Yeah, this is a, a fascinating one. Uh, I, I am very bullish on blockchain technology and, and NFTs uh, as, as, as a framework. You know, I have my guess is as good as anyone's as to whether any particular NFT product or cryptocurrency over any short duration will succeed or fail. 
but but the technology and the underlying infrastructure is is quite enduring. And that's largely why people refer to deals in this space often right now as being the web 3.0 category, uh, because it really is generation internet in which data in a decentralized manner rather than a centralized manner, whether that's financial data or, or otherwise. Uh, and so I think, you know, if, if you buy into the future of blockchain technology and the applications of decentralized ledgers and, and what that brings to bear, uh, that there are important considerations to say, okay, how does that impact the world of sports, sports tech, and in, in particular, in my case, sports betting? Uh, and we've already seen the success of NBA Top Shot, for example, and the product that Dapper Labs will soon come out with, with the NFL, the NFL's version of Top Shot, uh, are these digital collectibles, collectible moments, sort of like baseball and basketball cards, but in the Web 3.0 version. That, that is perhaps the instantiation that people are most familiar with. Uh, but there are also several others that are being looked at. Uh, the concept of play to earn gaming, games like Axie Infinity uh, and Zed Run uh, and Star Atlas, uh, which should be launching soon and, and several others are really changing the world of video gaming and online gaming on their heads uh, and resulting in a, in a whole new set of opportunities for, for people in the space. You have a lot of NFT based fantasy platforms, similar to what SoRare has done in, in Europe uh, with NFT-based fantasy soccer or football, depending on where you're listening from. Uh, there are several companies trying to be the so rare of the U.S. and, and of American sports. Uh, you also have uh, a lot of blockchain-based decentralized peer-to-peer -peer betting exchanges uh, that, that are cropping up. And then on the back end, one of the most compelling aspects of the use of blockchain technology in the world of sports betting and online real money gaming uh, comes from the integrity and governance standpoint. Uh, so first of all, one issue that some people have, especially depending on where they live in the world, is worrying that if they place a wager uh, that will not be resolved for several months, if at the beginning of the NFL season, you want to bet on the Super Bowl winner, uh, you might worry that you're going to deposit your money and place this bet and you might win it and your counterpart, the sports book, maybe will be insolvent or choose not to pay you for some reason. Uh, and using smart contracts is generally a way to, to avoid that need for trust in the first place. Uh, and that is something that's incredibly compelling, especially to people in certain jurisdictions. And another similar or at least related idea is this notion of what people refer to as provably fair gaming. You might play blackjack or a slot, spin a slot machine online and be a little dubious. Are, are they dealing me the cards that are just intended to get me to bet the most. And then when I bet my maximum, are they gonna you know, deal me the cards that cause me to lose? Uh, and people for years have doubted or just wondered what the fairness is of certain online casino games. If every time you deal a card or spin a roulette wheel, you stamp the results of that card or hand or spin on an immutable ledger, well then over the long term, you can audit the outcomes and make sure that they follow the distributions that would be followed if the results were truly being generated randomly and the deck was not stacked in the house's favor for any reason. So there's a whole bunch of applications uh, of essentially what is this taking this next generation decentralized internet protocol and applying it 
to the world of sports and sports betting and backend infrastructure. And the way I try to look at, at deals in this space is by in principle or primarily saying, is this company doing something with blockchain technology that A, could only be done with blockchain technology and B, significantly increases or augments the whatever type of experience or product they happen to be targeting. Because I think that type of utility will be what you want to make sure you're underwriting once some of the ebbs and flows and some of the NFT hype and things like that fall away, having real underlying utility as well as novelty to the application is probably going to be, at least in my view, critical to to long-term success. Yeah, I really like that outlook on it, especially with with blockchain is going, is this you know, is this lipstick on a pig? Are you just adding blockchains to something that doesn't necessarily need it in terms of that application or is, is not particularly innovative? And yeah, is, is it very hypey, very buzzy? Um, or is it something that has, uh, as you say, the, the, the infrastructure or the, the kind of the actual bones to it um, has something that stacks up? So uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing your expertise today, Lloyd. I've, I've got one final question for you before we, um, we sign off for today. Uh, what's your favorite sporting moment of all time? Oh, my favorite sporting moment of all time, probably biased a bit by the fact that I, I was a, a kid at the time, which made this all the more magical. But I think I'd probably have to say I'm, I'm a big Yankees fan. I grew up in the golden era of Yankee fandom recently, they won four world series in five years between 1996 and, and 2001. Uh, and I got to go to a lot of great games and see a lot of awesome teams. Uh, but in 2003, uh, when Aaron Boone hit a walk-off home run in game seven of the ALCS against the Red Sox to send the Yankees uh, to the world series, that would probably have to be, especially having been there, uh, my, my top sporting moment. It, it kind of has been all downhill for the Yankees and the Yankees Red Sox rivalry since then. Uh, so maybe that's especially the reason why I, I hold on to that. But no matter how many times I watch that, uh, that's one that, you know, I, I'll always get the chills from, but I will tell you that a, a close second, uh, but maybe for almost a, a different kind of reason uh, was the, uh, the George Bush throwing out the first pitch at the Yankees playoff game after September 11th. And yeah. I wasn't even old enough to know what politics was at the time, but I did probably hate George Bush just because I watched the daily show all the time. And John Stewart didn't like George Bush. And that was the, the extent of my knowledge of politics. But man, that night and everyone kind of chanting USA and, and being behind, uh, you know, in solidarity. And, and I went to the Yankees Mets game uh, on September 11th this year, which was the 20 year anniversary. Uh, and it was really awesome to get that, that similar kind of uh, unity uh, and, and just feeling of, of togetherness back in the stands. Uh, but all that said, I don't know if anything can compare to the Aaron Boone 2003 game seven ALCS walk-off home run. Great. Well, if anyone's got an NFT of that um, and they want to target Lloyd with it, then, I mean, reach out to him on LinkedIn. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's, that's for uh, sure. I, I'm, I'm the right guy for that. Thanks yeah. a lot, Thomas. Really appreciate it. It's been a, been a fun conversation. There you have it. That was Lloyd Danzig, founder and managing partner at Sharp Alpha Advisors. They've just closed a $10 million fund. So uh, really interesting to see how they allocate those funds raised to their investments over the next little bit. Thanks again for joining us on Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast.